So Kevin Reed from the Climate Extremes Modeling Group from Stony Brook University. So as I said in the email, I encountered you through the PBS NewsHour where you're talking to Hari Srinivasan. I hope I say the last name correctly, but essentially going over some patterns in terms of how global warming is impacting hurricane intensity, rainfall amounts, and, and what can be expected in the future. So I want to try to structure this around three things. One is basically how you got into this field and how it's changed over time and sort of how the climate extremes modeling group kicked in and, you know, what was the beginning and, and the end trajectory where you see it going. The second is, you know, an extension on what you talked about with Hari Srinivasan about current weather patterns and what can be expected from them. And the third area I want to get into is sort of the impact on cities, because it seems like there's a very clear relationship there in terms of storm water or storm surges that can potentially impact cities at their one of their most vulnerable points right in terms of water infrastructure it's one of the most historically struggling areas that cities have had to deal with so starting with your academic roots so how do you it sounds like you got your phd or 2012 from what i gather how do you start that realm because it seems like it's a very different discussion now than what it was then. Could you go through that? Yeah, I can give you a little bit of history and, you know, just a, a quick disclaimer, given the working from home environment, you may or may not hear my dog in the background. If you t I apologize in advance. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Yeah, we had, we had cats with another person, so it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah. So like most people, you know, my interest in science kind of started early on in, in some regards as a child. And I particular for a few things, I'd always just been fascinated about the weather, about events, you know, I, and when I was in middle school, you know, like preteen or even as a teenager, instead of going and watching, you know, MTV spring break or whatever my friends were doing when they would come home from school, uh, you know, when I would come home from school in the fall and, and late summer, you know, I would turn on the weather channel for the, the hurricane update or the tropical update. It was something that was just fascinating to me that we kind of had these huge storms out at sea that made, had such big impact and really captured the entire interest of the country when they were, you know, bearing down on, on a coastline. In addition, you know, I've always kind of had a fondness for math and kind of the quantitative reasoning of things and how, you know, one plus one is two, and there's no question about it. And that kind of thing gives me a lot of, uh, you know, a sense of calm, which I think is true of, of a lot of scientists and, and people that kind of think quantitatively. When I went to, you know, university, uh, I went to the University of Michigan for my undergraduate as well. And it was natural for me to just, you know, I loved physics um, in high school. I had a, a great physics teacher. And which I think is a common thing, you know, a lot of people in science, again, you know, they had somebody in their early formative years that really helped them kind of get into the topic and help them realize how fun and exciting and cool it was. And so, you know, I went to the University of Michigan and with, I knew from day one, essentially, that I was going to major in physics. And, you know, really at that time, I didn't realize how expansive the science field was and how many opportunities there were for careers in different sciences and disciplines. Um, you know, I kind of just thought of chemistry, biology, and and physics and, and didn't realize that people actually have whole programs for things like atmospheric science mm. um, that you could get a PhD in to do. And so I just figured that out naturally being in a university environment um, after a few years that, oh, there's this, this department up in the College of Engineering that has atmospheric science and climate classes. And so I started taking those in addition to my physics kind of traditional classes. And it was a natural kind of conversion for me in terms of I started doing research experiences through the National Science Foundation's research experience for undergraduates. One, I studied upper atmosphere variability of wind in the very higher upper atmosphere um, at the MIT Haystack Observatory. And another year I spent chasing dust devils in, in Arizona as well as modeling them in a lab. And it kind of just naturally found, oh, I was like, oh, well, I'm really interested in atmospheric science. It seems the right good way to go. But then, and then all of a sudden it, it, I, it was like a light for me. It, I just realized that, wait, I could actually study those things that, you know, that tropical update that I would watch back when I was a teen and preteen. It just kind of hit me one day that, oh, I could actually study that for my PhD. And, and I could get into this realm of looking at things like hurricanes and tropical cyclones and, and other extreme weather events. And once I got in, into that, it was exciting. You know, another aspect of it was it was kind of came at the right time. I really enjoyed the foundational understanding that you get as a physics student, especially the math, you know, the math background, you know, the, the basics of mechanics and quantum mechanics and all this other stuff. And, you know, it's one of those things that 
it was always a struggle for me to explain my interest to, you know, my, to my family members or friends. And I think we'd all agree that slamming, you know, high energy particles together at really fast speeds is very important for advancing science and technology and is a very worthwhile endeavor and something that I completely support. But the other kind of realization for me was working on a field like weather and, and climate. You know, the nice thing about weather is you don't have to explain oftentimes to people why it's relevant because, you know, weather is a talking point for everybody in their day-to-day lives. And so it was just kind of a lot of things came together for me. And the other reason I really kind of got into atmospheric science was that taking that, that idea to the next step, right? This idea that it's relevant, taking it even further into the fact that you know, climate change and understanding the climate so we can better project the potential impacts of climate change and what that means for society and what things we might need to change and we do need to change, you know, and working on climate policy and environmental policy is also another interest of mine. And yeah, so I studied uh, hurricanes as part of my PhD at the University of Michigan in the, at the time it was called the Department of Atmospheric, Oceanic and Space Sciences Department. I really valued the fact of being in a department that was pretty interdisciplinary, right? That you were taking required courses in your early years of your PhD program that people that were, you know, studying the sun or studying exoplanets or planetary atmospheres, things were very different. I thought that was nice because you, the way those classes were often taught was from a broader perspective, which I, you know, thoroughly enjoyed from my physics undergraduate years. But you know, I, I really valued that and get back to that in a second, because I think that's a reason which I led me to where my current position is, which is still a, a school that's very interdisciplinary in its research. But yeah, so early on, I, when I got into graduate school, it started in about 2007. And this was a time in which the computational tools we use for climate science and weather forecasting were very different. So climate models that are typically used for projecting long-term climate change are often They include these coupled processes that are important between the atmosphere, ocean, land, ice. And so because of that, they typically are run at, at, you know, fairly coarse resolutions, right? They're like watching a, you know, playing a video game on a 1995 television versus, you know, your HD one now. And so they typically weren't built to look at extremes and things that happen on the local scale, which is very different than our weather forecast models, which are made to run at, you know, high resolution. They're, they're like the, you know, the HD TVs we have now so that you could pick up on these, these small things like extreme weather events and, and hurricanes and, and forecasting them to get them right, you know, two or three days out. And, you know, with the continually growth of computational power, we, this was kind of a nice area to get into in the part because ultimately one of the most, you know, large interests of society is, is how extreme weather will change with climate change. And, and this is kind of a fact that's brought out in a lot of the, you know, whether you're looking at the IPCC or the National Climate Assessment in the United States. Uh, you know, it's, it's changes in weather in which most people will experience climate change. And so there was a question you know, 10 plus years ago of, well, if we started pushing the bounds of what these models could do, if one of the things, if we took a climate model and we just tried to run it at resolutions that were comparable to what forecast models were run at at the time, you know, how well does a climate model that was never built to, for example, model a, a hurricane, how well does it do at capturing a lot of the important characteristics of, of those type of events? And so that's kind of what my PhD research was on. And then since then, I had a variety of experiences. I, after I graduated, I actually went to Washington, D.C. and was an American Geophysical Union Congressional Science Fellowship. And this is a program in which I, I was actually working in the United States Senate as a, a science advisor to a senator. And so that kind of, you know, you started to see at least how the process works from a climate perspective, you know, climate energy policies and, and what we would need to do and, and what information is taken in at the policy level and used in making decisions. But after that, I went back into science full time and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which is in Boulder, Colorado, in which I picked up on that research that I had been working on, but kind of with a new perspective and a new even focus of realizing that it's really the hazard. Mm. It's the impacts of the extreme weather events matter to people. And so we started doing a lot more realistic simulations with these kind of new advanced climate models in which we were running them for decades looking at trends in, in extreme weather events like hurricanes, their precipitation, trying to make, interpret and make sure, improve the models so they can better simulate these events. And that ultimately led me to Stony Brook University, where I founded the Climate Extremes Modeling Group, in which our focus is not only improving our ability to model these events with climate models, but really focusing on 
how the hazards of those events change, right? So if you if hurricanes are changing, if we, you know you go out and say the global number of hurricanes are changing in one way or another, you know, really focusing on well, what does that mean for rainfall? What does that mean for storm surge? What does that mean for cities and locations and regions? And trying to come at this to a way in which we can produce, you know, the science outcomes and, and results that are at least relevant for society. Yeah, before you came, I was listening to, um, I guess it's one of your lectures, I suppose, from the school, but it's uh, called Detecting Climate Change Impacts on Extreme Weather. And the interesting one was that you described what you just mentioned is that the there was this shift, I guess, in prior some time ago, the thought was that if you can prove without beyond a question of a doubt that, you know, human impacts are raising global temperatures by this many degrees then there'll be clearly policies enacted to sort of circumvent it. Then you say, well, it didn't quite work that way, is that the clearest sort of way to channel this information to the general public is through showing the impacts, that what a one degree change in temperature actually means in terms of rainfall, in terms of intensity and so forth. Yeah, I found that quite interesting because I've always wondered this myself. I mean, the... um, I get the urge to show the clarity of the science in terms of the human impacts on the global climate. It just seems like it hits a dead wall so quickly, a brick wall so quickly. It always seemed like a much easier approach to say, you know, this is where we're headed and we can avoid the whole question of the cause of it, but we know that human intervention can be the thing that circumvents it. So if you just ignore the sort of cause argument of it, which I find to be where most people get into this hyper-polarized state where they don't hear anything, and you just talk about the impacts and how you can actually counteract them, it seems to be a much more constructive domain, which it's unfortunate because the other side of the coin seems to be, you know, the other side of that story seems to be very digestible, but for one reason or another, it's become hyper-politicized. Yeah, I've always thought, and I thought, well, maybe not always, but over, you know, this kind of history that we just talked about, I, I come to the realization that maybe sometimes, and this isn't meant to, you know, to talk negatively about any of my peers and as climate scientists, but to some extent, we've kind of missed the train on the best way to communicate communicate climate change, right? And that, you know, from a science perspective, talking about things in global average changes and these kind of aggregate metrics is the way we do science, but it's not the best way to communicate impact to people. Because, you know, the Earth's temperature over the industrial, you know, since the start of the Industrial Revolution has increased by a degree Celsius, right, on average. We have temperature swings in a day that can be, you know, 20 degrees. And so when you try to communicate that a change in a one degree global average is a large significant change in the climate system, which it is, it's really hard for even me as a scientist to think about, well, what does that mean, you know, for where I live right now? If when the forecasts are off by a couple of degrees, it doesn't drastically change my world on Saturday if I can't have a picnic outside because it's two degrees warmer than they said it was going to be, right? It's not, it doesn't translate. And of course, there's always been the historical way of trying to put it into perspective. Well, look at temperature changes of one degree on the av- over occurring over 100-ish years or 100 to 200 years is a rapid amount of warming to occur on the globe from a historical context going back a million years. But it's still when you when you that's when you start to lose people. And so, you know, I think changing it and changing of, okay, so, you know, the the warming is in the system and the warming is built into the system. So, you know, we're at a, a point now where we're not talking about climate change in the sense that, you know, climate change is something we have to mitigate. We have to start reducing emissions now to avoid impacts in 30 or 40 years. We are having the impact of climate change now. And what we're at a point of, do we want to still keep having these impacts that are worsening? Or do we want to get on a path that can mitigate those so that they're only one or two more degrees of warming going forward versus, you know, three, four, five degrees of warming. And so what we've done, you know, here at Stony Brook within the Climate Extremes Modeling Group is we've tried to look at ways of how can we look at that from an impact perspective? How can we take an event that dumps a lot of rainfall, for example, like a hurricane? Can we start to quantify how much of that rainfall that has fallen during a hurricane, how much of that has come from the, the fact that the earth has warmed by one degree? and help communicate the fact that, you know, an individual storm might have dumped 10% more rainfall, which could be the difference between, you know, a levee breaking or your house flooding or your school flooding and not, 
And also what we're trying to do going forward is maybe build that in another way too, to offer kind of future scenarios of, well, if the earth warms by another one degree, this is how much more rainfall would have fallen. You know, if we kind of don't do much and we keep, you know, emitting greenhouse gases and it's three degrees warmer in let's say 50, 60, 70 years, here's how much more rainfall would change. And I think by focusing on that, this is a kind of a new approach for us, but by focusing on that, it allows you to attribute the amount of impact of things, climate change on individual storms, on their hazards. You're not saying anything about whether the storm was more likely or not likely, but you're talking about the hazard. That allows you to translate it to different disciplines like engineering and things like that, which you know, oftentimes after an event, you're trying to plan for so that event doesn't happen again if it's particularly bad. And so you better acknowledge that climate change is part of that. But also this kind of alternate realities of saying, well, do you want to plan for Hurricane Sandy, for example, which you know happened in our area here? Are you planning for Hurricane Sandy in 2012 to not happen again? Or are you planning for Hurricane Sandy in a two or three degree warmer world to not happen again? And those are different things. And when it comes to flood levels, we're talking about differences on the order of, you know, 10 plus percent in some cases. So if you build a seawall to stop a certain amount of flooding, and you should really be building that for, you know, 10, 20% more uh, for those events. But it also allows you to see the, you could actually, from this framework, you can actually start to calculate, well, what are the cost savings, right? If we're able to get to a world that's only one degree warmer now, using this kind of framework, you can actually look at, okay, well, if it's only one degree warmer versus three degrees warmer, how much different would the impacts be? And, and what are the costs to my business, to my city, you know, to my shipping industry, something like that? You know, what are the costs on that and how are they different under these scenarios? And when I think you start putting these things in real impacts in terms of dollars or, or the impacts on society, you start to kind of see that, oh, there is a cost to not doing anything. And that cost will almost, I think eventually will seem way much order of magnitude smaller than the actual impact, than how much it would actually cost to start reducing emissions, investing in, in clean energies going forward. Yeah, that seems to be the hinge point, right? The, some of the numbers you mentioned too, I think on the news hour, was, I think you said for every one degree increase, there's a, you can project sort of a five to seven percent increase in what was the there's a technical term you use but the maximum rainfall throughout the lifetime of the storm what's i forget what the technical term was right so yeah this is where we get into the nitty-gritty of the science right which is still trying to understand but what we do know is that based upon our, our underlying theory how much moisture the atmosphere can hold given the temperature of the ocean for example or the temperature of the surface that for every degree celsius of warming we have that the atmosphere can contain about 7% more, sorry, moisture. And now that's not say that precipitation will increase by that much, but it just means that of course, right, what goes up must come down. And so most you know, precipitation comes from moisture in the atmosphere. And what we've seen though, is if you look at rain doesn't just fall by itself, it falls because it's associated with weather events like front and hurricanes and other different aspects like monsoons and and mesoscale convective systems, and there's a lot of different flavors of how we get our precipitation. But those are often associated with circulation, right? And circulation is just a fancy word to say is that moisture somewhere else is being moved into, you know, it's being confined into an area so that it can pile up and then rain. And when you look at a thing like a hurricane, so not only do you have more moisture in the atmosphere from a warming uh, environment, but we know that these storms are becoming stronger. The winds are becoming stronger, which means there's more movement or convergence, right, of that moisture in the storms. So you have this addition of this, you know, 7% more moisture per degree C, which has a feedback onto stronger storms, which we can actually have been able to detect with this, with this methodology and these attribution frameworks that depending upon the storm, yeah, you're seeing anywhere from actually like five to seven, in some cases, 10% increases in, in maximum rain amount uh, over the lifetime of a storm due to climate change to date. And so the way to think about that's due to one degree warming, right? So we can say five to 10 is I think a comfortable range that a variety of studies and not even just our own other methodologies that others have done for different types of, of hurricanes over different years. And so if you just kind of turn that around and say, okay, well, if that's from one degree of warming, then it's really easy to kind of to show, or, or to, at least from this theory is that under an additional degree of warming, it, it's safe to assume that your changes in precipitation and storms is going to be over 10% more 
due to climate change. And as you go to two, three, four degrees additional warming, it is certainly going to approach 20%, in some cases even more, in terms of rainfall. And so I always say that 5% is a lot, right? Because if you have a storm like Hurricane Florence, which made landfall in the Carolinas on the eastern, you know, eastern coast of the United States in 2018, right, that, that storm dumped about foot, right? So speaking in U.S. terms here, but about 33 inches, right? Three feet, 33 inches of, of rainfall, so almost a meter. And if climate change impacted that by increasing that amount by 5%, right, that's a significant amount of rain. That's more than most places get in a given day or multiple days and sometimes week. And so if you're saying that that already is having an impact, but now in the future that could be 20% more, then you're talking about substantial impacts on our built environment, on the infrastructure we've put, you know, to, to handle these type of events, but also just regular infrastructure, right, that was never built for these type of floods that are maybe already aging in some regard, you're already have, you're adding an additional stress on an infrastructure that's already stressed. Yeah, if it's sort of 30, I guess the 5% is like an inch and a half, and then, you know, 20%, you could breach sort of 40 inches with a storm like that, right? If that's the model of it, so one-fifth of it or whatever, yeah. Right, yeah. And of course, every storm is different, right? Every storm has a different intensity, has a different size. And so, you know, there's other aspects of trying to understand what the impacts of, of climate change are, because climate change does impact intensity of storms. Climate change is expected to impact the size, right? How big a size a hurricane can get. And it's also expected to impact, you know, even further down line, the, the precursors to these storms. So what is the likelihood of having more or less storms in the future? These are all open scientific questions. You know, the kind of consensus right now is that the number of storms, at least globally, from a hurricane perspective, will remain about the same or decrease slightly in the future. And exactly why that is, is still something that we're trying to use climate models in their traditional sense, kind of long-term climate uh, projection runs and trying to understand how the environment's changing, how the precursors are changing to understand, you know, why storms might be staying the same or decreasing. But I've kind of, the way I've always tried to, to talk about this is hurricanes are extreme weather events, which means by definition, they're rare, right? So we're talking about a rare event and we're trying to plan for rare events. And oftentimes, when you're planning for rare events, right, you're, you're already, you're building, you're building in the, the understanding that they might only happen once every 20 years or once every 50 years. That's actually built in oftentimes to the infrastructure, right, that we build in our cities. And so if you have something that, right, if, if the number of storms decreases by 5, 10% in the future, of course, that will change, right, how often maybe a place you get impacted by a storm, but landfalling storms are rare events of rare events. And so Ultimately, focusing on numbers to me and the frequency of the storms is the wrong focus because the impacts occur when a storm makes landfall. And, and what we do know is that in the future, whether the storms remain the same or decrease in genesis, they're still going to make landfall at some point. And when they make landfall, their impacts are going to be significantly more than what they are now. And you have to, right, if you're a coastal city, you have to plan for those events, even if they're a once in a 50-year event. And that is what cities historically have done. And so, you know, trying to, how we inform those decisions is trying to understand how is it that the characteristics, the hazards associated with those storms may be changing in the future or have already changed due to climate change. I remember you had mentioned this also again on the news hour. The um, Can you extend on why it would decrease? I mean, is it something about the, you said the number may be stable or decrease, but the the decreasing one was curiosity because I think the, the beginning of actually the story in which you're incorporated, it's talking about how, you know, there have been so many storms this year that they've started using letters from the Greek alphabet. And then you had said stable or decrease, which, again, so much of the news has been about more storms and more intense. I know you said it's sort of an open question, but what's the discussion around that today? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing to put into perspective is that, right, the Again, going back to this idea that hurricanes, particularly when you focus on an individual basin, are, are rare events. And so if you focus on the North Atlantic, right, the average number of storms in any given year in the North Atlantic is about 12 storms that kind of reach named stat, you know, where they're given a name and per year. But we've had years in which we've had, you know, four or five. And we've had years in which, you know, like this year, which we're, we're reaching the, the up, you know, the high 20s. And this variability is a natural thing to some extent, because it depends upon, you know, circulations going on within the system, right? If we're in an El Nino or La Nina-like year, these have impacts even downstream on different basins. 
But if you look at things from a global perspective, the global number of storms and all the ocean basins combined, that is actually surprisingly a very stable number. Hmm. Of course, it's not, it's about 90 per year. And of course, it's not 90 every year. It ranges, uh, you know, plus or minus, I don't know the exact number, but it, you know, it has, it has a distribution, but that median in it is pretty consistent. So when you look at individual basins and you want to understand, okay, was this all, you know, are the number of storms this year, you know, changing because of climate change? It's a hard thing to answer because when the variability is oftentimes as from year to year can be as large as this mean number of storms per year. Right. If your standard of deviation is as is, is, is large as your mean or median, then it's, it's really hard to say anything significant when you have double the amount of storms. But from a global perspective, you know, one of the, just the kind of simplest way to think about why storms might be decreasing in the future or remaining roughly the same global perspective wise is that the conditions that are needed for a storm to form right? They depend on a few things. They depend on, on having warm sea surface temperatures. So that's something we can say pretty confidently is increasing in the future because those warm sea surface temperatures, those warm upper ocean temperatures, right? That's what provides the fuel to the storms. And that fuel is what we had just talked about a few minutes ago, right? It's that of moisture. You often need kind of low shear environments. And that's just a fancy way of saying that we want the wind speeds within the kind of you know, level going up in the atmosphere to kind of be relatively the same everywhere. So we don't want there to be really fast winds somewhere and then really slow winds near the surface because that would disrupt anything trying to grow into the atmosphere, which is what storms do. And so this is why storms often can form in the tropics, but they don't form in the mid-latitudes because in the mid-latitudes we have the thing, we have jet streams, right? Which, which we all, if you live in the mid-latitudes, you know quite a bit about because, you know, if you watch the weather, you know, your your local weatherman or weather woman, right? That's one of the things they're always showing, right? Is this wiggly line of jet stream. And th- that produces a lot of shear because it has a, you know, really fast moving winds high up in the atmosphere. So those, that's bad for storms. And so understanding how that changes in the future is not clear, but in some areas you'd expect it to decrease and some areas maybe it increases a little bit. But the other thing you need is, is you need convection to initialize, right? So you need some type of disturbance to lead to the the kind of initial low pressure system that would develop. And that is an unclear question, right? So that is unclear of how these tropical waves and all these type of disturbances that lead to storms, how that's changing. But in addition, the other thing is, is that as due to the nature of greenhouse gas warming, the atmosphere itself becomes more stable. And what that means is it makes, right, if you have a displacement of air in the atmosphere, if the atmosphere is more stable, that air wants to remove to where it was displaced from. Right. Just like, a, you know, if you're pushing up a ball up a hill, right, if you push it up the hill, it'll roll back down to the valley. And in order for convection to really take off and to develop a storm, you need the atmosphere to be at least unstable or what we call conditionally unstable, meaning once you start to have cloud formation and you have, you know, cloud droplets form that releases latent heat in the atmosphere. And once you have that formation of clouds, then you can kind of have the atmosphere become unstable. Hmm. Um, and so that's one reason why they might be, you know, so I guess to sum it up, there is a lot of, you know, climate change is, is of course, increasing the global average temperature, but its impacts on the rest of the climate system can have competing effects on what that means for tropical cyclones and their formation. And for you, that's not the, ultimately the important subject matter anyway, right? You're talking about the impacts and sort of how, how we can communicate those and how we can sort of act within that framework, right? Yeah. One quick thing. So your way of talking about this and your approach to now communication based upon this lens of impact and hazards, is this a direct byproduct of your time in D.C. and working with policy circles? Yeah. So I want to answer two questions. I want to get back to that first comment that you made. And so in our current framework, we are focused on impacts and, and the hazards. Um, and so, you know, we're often talking about once the probability of a storm is one, right, because it's happening, then we're trying to look at how climate change has maybe changed the characteristics of that storm. And so we aren't saying anything about the likelihood of that storm in the future. And that's in somewhat by design, because that's a question that we can answer. So when the media comes and they say, did climate change, you know, cause the storm? You know, the typical climate science response is, well, you know, we can never, ever, we'll never, ever, ever, ever be able to say whether or not a storm was due to climate change or not, because the system is inherently chaotic. But if we have a storm happening and we know the environment's changed, we can start to quantify what the impacts of climate change would be on the characteristics. And so that is the approach that has somewhat come out, uh, uh, in part, you're right, because of my background in, in D.C. and always trying to 
to kind of look at the impacts and how this research could be applied to whether it's not necessarily directly informing policies, maybe, especially right policies to mitigate climate change in the long term, but it certainly, you know, would impact. It shows you that if you do mitigate that your impacts of these storms could be reduced, at least from a per storm basis in the future. But also it could allow you to work with local decision makers and, and local planners to make sure that the coastlines in certain regions are planned for for future coastlines or future storms that are kind of this, what I would say, you know, storm that recent storm that happened. So, right, you know, Hurricane Sandy plus, Hurricane Florence plus climate change. Um, and I think that that's important that's an important thing to provide. And that is in part informed by my interest in trying to not only do work that's relevant, but also help to provide graduate students the, the interest that they want to work on. And, and graduate students, you know, this generation of scientists, they want to work on societally relevant problems and they want to try to work right at that interface. And a lot of them want to have careers in that interface. And so, you know, it's also as a professor, it's partially my job to to help train and provide opportunities for these students. So have you done work in, in the sector of urban planning at all, or is your current sort of research at all intersecting with that realm? So it, it's a new and future direction of mine. So I do work with, you know, I, well, I've worked in the past with water resource managers, but I have been starting to develop uh, collaborations with urban planners, both at Stony Brook and beyond to look at the impacts of are these type of frameworks, what we kind of refer to as a storyline approach to climate change by working with individual events and looking how they'd be different under various scenarios, you know, how useful and how could that be used if it is useful by urban planners kind of at the local and regional level. I want to comment on one more thing before we get too far from it, which was related to, you know, this framework is just one of the things we do in the climate extremes modeling group. And we do run the, the full range. And so while these are really applied and rel societally relevant simulations that are trying to, you know, kind of inform decision makings and, and climate solutions, we also, you know, we go all the way other side. The nice thing about global kind of climate models is you can do really cool things with them. You, you can run really idealized simulations. You can remove continents. You can change the ocean temperature. You can do, you can use the models as kind of your experimental lab. And so we are actually trying to understand the fundamental aspects of what controls the number of tropical cyclones on a rotating sphere that has X amount of radiation from its sun or star and how, right, and how, you know, how that would change if the surface temperature is warm. So if you get more energy or more energy stays in the system, but also how would that change if Earth was a little bit different and it rotated faster, or if it was a little bit larger, how would the number of storms change and how would their evolution change? Because, you know, trying to understand, well, why, you know, what controls their frequency oftentimes requires pulling out complexity and kind of coming up with some, you know, idealized analogs of Earth so that we could try to get at those questions. So we still are trying to answer and understand, you know, how the frequency might change. Um, and so we're kind of using this hierarchical approach. And oftentimes that's the type of research, right, that isn't necessarily directly translatable to the public. And so it's oftentimes something that's not covered as much in the media or sometimes at all, but a very interesting, I think, avenue in which you can kind of use models to help inform and understand. I think I find interesting is that, so, I mean, what you just framed is basically the that there are questions embedded within your discipline that are deeply pertinent to your discipline. And then there's other questions that are also pertinent to the discipline that have an overlap with societal, you know, maybe short-sightedness is not the term, but sort of, you know, immediate vision upon society, that there's some overlap within there. In architecture and urbanism, interestingly, the there's both realms also, like most disciplines, but the dilemma is that within the sort of hyper-specialized the moments of the discipline of urbanism and architecture, it goes into this hyper jargon filled realm that that has abstracts things to a degree and embeds so much complex terminology into it that even many urbanists are just sort of fed up with it. So they've really just gone to the overlap where, you know, it's significant to society, whether in the current day, in the sort of future, but they linger there. And then there are these other folks who talk about the philosophical, phenomenological, cosmological, symbolic, you know, conception of a city and so forth. And it's almost like the two don't intertwine so well, even in terms of the conferences they attend, right? There, There's very different conferences they go to. So it's interesting to hear on your end, that you're actually, you know, within a group that's that's tackling both in tandem. 
It's more about which sector can be communicated to the public and has, I guess, impact for the public that differentiates the two polarities for you. Yeah. And I think, you know, that kind of relates to my interest of my, in my background, right? I think some of my earlier work was very idealized and for under process level understanding, but I've part of the reason I've gotten into science and into this discipline is in part because I'm interested in how that impacts society, how the impacts of climate change are. And, you know, it's not always easy having, you know, wearing both hats at both sides of the spectrum in terms of, you know, keeping up with ever-growing literature on these topics, as we all know, in, in all fields. But I think the more we train students that it's okay to work a little bit in both, that you can be a, you know, a theoretician, but also dabble in trying to understand impacts. And of course, everybody will pick out, you know, what part of the slider they want to be on. But to show that, you know, that's how science advances. Science doesn't advance just because you know, four physicists are in a room somewhere talking about theory, they advance because they come up with an idea that an experimentalist can test that somebody else can then go out and see, you know, can we build this into a technology? And so this is, you know, in the history of science, this has always been the way things work. It's just, you know, the advantage of, at least in, in my viewpoint, uh, how quick and how quick information spreads now is that individual groups can actually span this whole realm sometimes now. And I think, in, in the discipline of climate science and, and kind of extreme weather, I think it's maybe just, I don't know if it's easier, but it's maybe just a little bit more, I guess, direct for, for us to operate in that realm, or at least the way we think we do things at Stony Brook, and because, in the sense that we're using the actual same model, right? So the, the model that we've developed and that we've, that's been developed actually by from community efforts is a model that can be run in very idealized simulations or can be run in very localized, specific impactful configurations. And so that's a real advantage because that means that, you know, I, we really only have to know one code base to some extent, but it's also an advantage because that means that you can try to translate the things, the, the things that you learn in one kind of iteration of the model, you can see if they actually hold in the more applied version or vice versa. And I think that helps for you, you know, a group as we advance the science to understand where these impacts are coming from and what, what the changes are due to, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, is a nice advantage. Is that a pattern that you're seeing across institutions to sort of straddle that fence? I think, I don't know how common it is to straddle that fence just because, you know, oftentimes it's hard enough to, you know, to, to, to create a, to run a research group and focus on kind of, you know, your, your, in, your phenomena of interest and your, your methodology you use for that. And I think, I do think that the way science has traditionally evolved is that, right, we get our PhD and you learning a methodology that maybe we've developed or maybe we've adapted from our advisor and then we go off spending, you know, the next 30 years of our, our careers, you know, giving that same information to our students and kind of refining that methodology more and more, but sticking with the same methodology. And I think that, or maybe, you know, I think that's, that's obviously an over-idealization of the model, but I think that when you work in a, soci- a very societally relevant field, such as atmospheric and climate sciences, I think there's always this inherent push and pull. And I think oftentimes within departments, you'll have you know groups and researchers that are kind of at both sides of it. But I think it's, it's not so common for people to try to work in, in both sides. Hmm. And, and for me, it's just kind of come out of an, an interest of trying to do societally relevant research, but also still an interest in trying to understand the basics of why things, the fundamentals of why things happen the way they do. And so that ultimately leads you to have to use kind of this this buried approach. Mm -hmm. So one thing, I had a conversation with a colleague who's obsessed with water, water in relation to the city, Brooke Muller, who's who's now at, golly, I keep messing it up, but he's he's in North Carolina. I want to say UNC Charlotte, but I always forget if it's that one or the other one. But he gave this very interesting story about how water infrastructure in American cities had developed over time. So basically, that could be missed sort of remembering here. But the, the story he gave was sort of from centralization down towards decentralization, meaning that post-World War II, there's this time period where top-down impositions are, or interventions are regarded to be quite efficient, and you can engineer your way out of most problems, right? So a lot of the stormwater infrastructure in many cities are developed in this manner, right? They were, at least within that time period, huge amounts of grants given and so forth. But the dilemma is that within that time period, it's also at the time where they're trying to structure systems or design systems in a way where 
they can always handle the maximum load in the most efficient way possible, even in sort of air conditioning systems from this time, right? They talk about the hottest day of the year or the coldest day of the year, and they make sure that the air conditioning system is based upon that load. Today, for instance, there's a slightly different model embedded within, let's say, air conditioning systems is that they assume those days will be difficult. And they say that to sort of design the system to handle those maximum loads makes the system most likely highly unsustainable for the rest of the year. So they try to design a system that can handle the most of the year without a problem and deal with these extremes in a that you assume is just going to be a more difficult day or strenuous on the system or whatnot. In water, there seems to have been a similar one where they recognize, one, that the vast amount of funds that go into this kind of infrastructure in cities is hugely inefficient in those moments where you don't have that rare storm surge, right? And that there's heavy amounts of upkeep involved in it. And again, why what I've encountered, at least the in terms of reading on the subject, is that a lot of water infrastructure in cities is heavily indebted, always running a you know deficit and having significant issues in terms of just maintaining itself in the future. So the pattern that he's traced now, again, this is what I recall from Brooke's story, is that what a lot of cities are leaning towards are sort of this hybrid public-private portfolio of large-scale solutions and small-scale solutions, partly centralized solutions and partly decentralized solutions. And, you know, these hurricane or storms become more and more intense. I find it to become, I find it to be a very interesting question, particularly in decentralized aspect, because while my focus is on urbanism, a lot of my students is focused on architecture, right? So the building scale versus the city scale. And it seems like in this decentralized version, there's a lot of cities, New York being one of them, for instance, that are now giving rather large tax incentives to produce green roofs. From the architectural lens, this is typically regarded as like, you know, biophilic reactions, people like greenery sort of cooling down the heat island effect. But it seems like actually on the urban aspect, urban realm, it's it has primarily to do with water that you, when a sort of rainfall hits, a green roof can retain it for a period of time and then slowly percolate it back into the stormwater infrastructure so you don't get this sudden sturge, but you get a sort of gradual percolation into it. So that's the story that I want to give you know context to the question is, what's your perspective on this? Because that's from architecture and urbanism, sometimes we have a highly insular approach to these things. It seems like you're beginning to weave into this realm of interdisciplinarity have you had discussions within that domain? Yeah, so I mean, we've definitely had discussions, you know, we're kind of early in the process and the discussions are, are somewhat related to, you know, what information and how that information is presented, you know, is the most useful for in making these decisions, or at least in, you know, kind of informing these kind of different scenarios of why these infrastructure changes or kind of greenery or, you know, are important and how they could be used and, and how the information that we have is relevant to that. And so, you know, and, and just your example from that perspective, you know, the events that we've been focusing on are these really impact events that oftentimes dump precipitation over a period of days, right? And so when you have a event that like Hurricane Harvey 2017, right, if you have an event that dumps three feet or a meter of rainfall, you know, it does it, the storm drain and the storm runoff is probably not going to matter anymore. The system is going to be so overwhelmed that, that this green infrastructure maybe won't have as much of an impact. But mm -hmm. if you kind of look at, so what we've also been starting to do is, okay, well, can we start to, to look at these impact on events that aren't as extreme, right? So Hurricane Laura this year, uh, which made landfall in the Gulf states, you know, th that dumped about a 12 inches of rainfall. So there you still saw a climate change signal of about an inch in terms of increasing the amount of rainfall in that storm. But but that's not as, you know, there's still a lot of rainfall, let's be clear. But, you know, that is something that maybe your system could be built to, if it was already built to handle kind of your typical once every five year hurricane, you want to make sure it's built to handle your once every five year hurricane plus. Hmm you know, 10%. And so that's where starting to just kind of have those conversations, even figure out what is the information that's relevant. Is it the percentage or is it talking about, you know, where you would, you know, where you would build this into your decision-making process? One of the, some of the discussions we've had and some of the kind of projects and stuff that we are starting to think about and propose and build collaborations for is to try to think about, can we use this modeling framework and couple it with other models, such as hydrologic models or storm surge models? that actually can allow you to build things, you know, and another big topic in, in New York City is 
kind of storm barriers, right? These, yeah, yeah. Whether or not you want to build a big one or whether you want to have all your, your individual inlets have barriers or where you would put these barriers. But oftentimes, right, one of the things about water is it's still going to flow to the lowest place possible, right? So if you put a barrier somewhere to protect it, you know, per, start, per, yeah a certain region, you know, that water might be pushed somewhere else. And so some of the ways we've talked about it is can we build systems that allow us to build this climate change signal into the forcing, the hydrologic model, in which you could then, you know, place where you would put your barriers or where you would put your, your levees and how would the flooding be different under a few different scenarios and a few different design scenarios. And is that, you know, how can that be used to inform the eventual decision-making of of a whether and first question of whether or not to build those type of barriers and and if you do decide to build them where would you place them and and what are the impacts on you know the the surrounding areas if you put a barrier somewhere here and and so that's the level of, of kind of detail we started to get into so we're kind of just scratching the surface obviously but as you mentioned part of this uh, a little earlier you know part of these type of collaborations just comes from you know, the willingness to sit down in the same room or on these days, the willingness to sit down in the same Zoom call for maybe two hours, right? Which we're all in Zoom purgatory and, you know, that's a lot of time, but oftentimes just to get an understanding of what is capable and what each group and different discipline is capable of doing and how they typically do things, it oftentimes takes multiple two-hour sessions, right? Before you're even on the same page, before you can even start thinking about how you would kind of formulate a plan. And I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, part of the realm that we're interested in getting into and we're trying to push into is be open to those discussions, right? If we're trying to build a, a framework that's societally relevant, well, one of the ways to do that is you have to, once you have your framework that you think is maybe relevant, then you have to sit down and have those conversations with other disciplines, uh, with urban planners, with storm surge modelers and hydrologists and, and all these different disciplines and start to say, okay, well, well, you know, how could we build this information into your model? And, and, and once it's in your model, maybe it becomes a re, you know, relevant to these people over here that typically use your model to model future floods for New York City. And, you know, these kinds of processes take a long time. And that's okay, because that's, I think that's how the process works. But an important thing is that we have to start those processes now, because if we want to have, you know, informed solutions and decisions, you know, in 10 years from now, you can't wait until nine and a half years from now to put the team together, right? You've got to start having those conversations far in advance so that you have the capabilities to actually make the society relevant decisions based upon, informed by science. You know, that has to be going on, as you mentioned, it just takes a while to build those relationships and to build the commonality um, to focus on the same problem. I think too, the, the language itself, I mean, what you were talking about initially, the sort of academic silos, right? We all have our specific jargon and specific way of talking about things and specific thought of how how things should be communicated. What I find at least much more hopeful is that, you know, there seems to be quite a lot of researchers from a range of disciplines now approaching it the way you're talking about it, where the thought isn't so much how to approach this from a discipline-specific perspective, but actually pushing to translate or transform your knowledge base in a way that's digestible from, you know, by various other disciplines, which requires the other disciplines also to, you know, have that kind of step in the same direction, which is, a, I think it's a very difficult one, like you're saying in a Zoom room. It's hard not to have the too many chefs in the kitchen kind of thing occurring, especially if you have certain, you know, personality traits within certain uh, disciplines but that urge or the capacity to communicate across a discipline while simultaneously knowing the intricacies of your discipline seems to be a very difficult one to to grasp but again congrats to you for doing that work uh, i'm very curious where it ends up in nine and a half years as you say if this is the timeline <laughs> well, yeah well hopefully we, well, we can get a little better at the, that timeline you know, I'm sure there's more optimistic views of that. And I wasn't meaning to be too pessimistic, but I do think that it takes, you know, a long foundation to build it. And the foundation has been happening um, in a lot of countries and even in the United States, it's been happening to build these kind of, you know, convergent ways to do science. Um, I think I'll just maybe we'll finish with one, I, one aspect that kind of makes me hopeful that, that maybe it won't take that long to do things is that I think that the current generation of the scientists that are being trained, this is where they want to work. This is, they want to work at the intersections. They want to do research at the intersections. And so if you create the next workforce and the next, you know, scientist force that is in technology, 
that are already that are trained and already thinking about projects at the interfaces, then you know this sometimes this delicate dance of having to have you know hours of Zoom calls just to be on the same page that's already in their DNA, and you know that's what kind of you know gives me hope that this this is the pathway because we're we're hopefully training our scientists and our scientists are hopefully interested and in working at those intersections and most of I mean if you talk to them they're you know that's the advantage to being you know going into your PhD or going into your undergraduate research right it's you don't know what's achievable yet based upon typical standards and you get to set a bar that might be higher than what you know somebody that's been doing it for 10 years would set because they know all the practical aspects that go into it but by setting that bar higher and wanting to work that as a career focus um, gives me hope that that the next generation of scientists, the current ones that are, you know, going through their training, will be the ones that are really going to be doing this work. No, I think that's spot on. Even even within the you know architecture and urban students, who there, historically there's been a heavy emphasis on form related manners, this formal poetics and so on. It's very rare to encounter that today. It's always students who are interested in this intersection that you're talking about. You know. The city and ecology, the city and sustainability, the city and resilience, the city and inclusivity. It's always that and thing embedded into it. But no, I think that's a great point to end on, Kevin. Thank you so much for doing this. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jen. It was, yeah, it was nice to meet you. And maybe we'll hopefully we can stay in touch. Yeah. 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 Sounds good. Great. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.